Uh, Luke 23, uh, chapter, sorry, sorry, chapter 23, verses 32 onwards. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed justly, for, uh, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Thanks for having me this morning. It's a delight to be here with you guys. Um, it's also a joy and privilege because I was just reflecting while I was sitting there uh, that church across the road which is a bit more Pentecostal was actually the first church I once preached in I used to be in more Pente circles before becoming more reformed and before going to Trinity and, and other things and that was the first church I preached in five years ago and the day after my licensure I'm across the road here so <laughs> it's it's quite exciting um, so let me pray and we're going to jump into it Lord God, we praise you that you've blessed us so greatly in Christ with infinite blessing far above all we can comprehend. Truly, it's by your grace that we are saved. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts to delight in your grace, delight in your goodness, and see in this story of Jesus upon the cross, your grace and goodness towards the thief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're diving into this passage in Luke chapter 23, looking at two criminals and a king, a snapshot of Christ upon the cross, dying the death of a cursed man as a criminal among criminals. And it's a snapshot of the infinite mercy and grace of God. Before we begin, I want us to consider the real temptation to overlook the weight of what Christ has done upon the cross. For some of us, we may hear the story of Christ upon the cross being repeated week in and week out and subconsciously allow ourselves to switch off each time we hear it. Yet the message of Christ upon the cross is the foundation and substance of the entire Christian life. We must grow in the gospel, not graduate from it. So I encourage you this morning not to subconsciously drift off as you hear about Christ on the cross afresh, but meditate on it fresh this morning and ask for God's help that you would delight in it as you hear. Let's dive in. Firstly, we're going to start by looking upon the man on the middle cross, and then we're going to look at the two criminals. First of all, let's look at the man on the middle cross and ask the question, who is he? Who is the man upon the middle cross? Well, we see he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Saviour King, who was promised in the Old Testament. This is what the people are mocking Jesus for, his claim to be the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. 
God's promised Old Testament anointed king. And we see this through verses 35 to 43. Take a look at the passage if you've got it in front of you. In verse 35, it says, Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And then it says, If you are king of the Jews, save yourself. Then the inscription above him saying, This is the king of the Jews. And the arrogant criminal saying, Are you not the Christ? But why are they mocking him about this? Well, they're mocking him for his claim earlier in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 3, which say this. Then the whole company of them, that is the the chief priests and scribes, arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. We see clearly here that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ, the king of the Jews. And certainly this is why the Jewish rulers and Roman soldiers are mocking him. But this term Christ or king of the Jews is a loaded term. It doesn't just refer to any king, But as mentioned before, God's promised Old Testament king. The main place one would go to find this promise of this Old Testament king is 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that God will raise up his offspring and give his offspring an eternal kingdom. This is the Christ, the king whom God would establish a kingdom that would last forever. Likewise, there's a similar prophecy in Daniel which describes this king as one who has an eternal kingdom over all the nations of the earth. It is this king who, according to the prophet Isaiah, would bring perfect and unending peace from all enemies, bringing perfect justice on all evil and perfect righteousness. And true worship of God would characterize his kingdom. This is Christ, the King of the Jews, the ultimate King, the ultimate hope of all the Old Testament promises. Yet the Jews of Jesus' day would have, understand, would have understood these Old Testament promises to be referring to a literal kingdom, hoping for and expecting a powerful and mighty King to come in and wipe out the Roman Empire which in Jesus' day were the so-called enemy nation. They would have expected a man to come that would be a great military leader, that would crush all their enemies with physical armies and establish the physical kingdom of the Jews. They would not have expected their king to be hanging upon a Roman torture device. Hence, they are mocking him. Their narrow view of Christ... And their hardness of heart because of sin led them to miss who this was that they were crucifying. But we see that Jesus is not just the prophesied king of the Old Testament, but Jesus is God himself who took on flesh. We see this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which reads, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And already in Jesus' ministry, we know Jesus has claimed to be God. And we see this in the book of John, for example, in chapter 5, verse 18, which reads, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The reality is that the one whom the Jews had put upon a cross is not only the promised king, but God himself who took on flesh. This was the king of glory who spoke and brought all things into being. The one who formed the stars, the maker of the universe, their infinite creator, who entered into creation and took on flesh. This man hanging before them on the middle cross was no mere man, but God himself in human flesh. Now that we've looked at who he is, let's look at what was happening to him. What was being done to the Christ, the King of glory, the creator of the world who took on flesh and entered into his creation? Well, first, let's think about what would the right response be? Well, you'd expect an uncontainable rejoicing that God has come to earth to save sinners, to establish his perfect kingdom upon earth. You'd expect them to prepare a lavish feast, bringing him the best of all they had, falling at his feet and worshipping him, declaring to you, O God, be blessing and glory and might and power and honour forever and ever. Yet instead, he was given a criminal's death upon the cross among criminals. See verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And not only that, but he was treated worse than the actual criminals. The perfectly righteous and holy one, fully innocent and without any sin, the only innocent one who ever lived, being treated as the worst of sinners. All that are looking on are mocking and scoffing the king of kings, as the king of life hangs to die the worst of deaths. One commentator says this, Perhaps we can think of how the word cancer strikes fear in people today. But the word crucifixion was far worse since those who were crucified hung upon a cross, typically naked for hours and sometimes days. One could only breathe by pushing up with one's feet. Insects would feast on one's blood. In addition, Jesus' body is already lacerated from scourging. We cannot even begin to imagine the suffering. This is how they're treating the King of Glory as the Prince of Thieves. 
And in the midst of this dark moment upon the cross, Luke focuses in on the two criminals beside Jesus to show us how they are responding. And let's look at them now from verse 39 onwards. The arrogant criminal and the humble criminal. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This criminal was acting just like the rulers and the soldiers, arrogantly calling Jesus to come down from the cross, to save himself, to prove that he is the Christ. But there's a sad irony in the criminal's comment, where he says to Jesus, save yourself and us. Because it's not by Jesus coming down from that cross, but by staying up on that cross that he could become a saviour. Only by staying upon the cross could he do that very thing. And note his hardened and arrogant heart. He had no fear of God. He was on the cusp of death, about to pass into death and stand before God. And yet he had no regard for what was about to come. Instead, he participated in the mocking and felt that even in this moment of death, it was better to rail against the king with the crowds. And it's here that we see a great contrast in the other criminal, the humble criminal. Now, initially, this criminal was actually mocking Jesus alongside the other criminal, which we see in Matthew's account of this story, which says, And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. This man was initially joining in with the reviling. But here, now, he has changed and, and coming to Jesus in faith. Let's read from Luke 23, verses 40 to 43. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This criminal clearly recognizes that this man on the middle cross is more than a man. He clearly recognizes Christ's true identity. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes that Jesus is the king of a kingdom beyond the grave. Isn't it ironic? The only one who recognizes Jesus' true identity at the moment of his death and trusts in him isn't the rulers of the Jews. It isn't even Jesus' most faithful disciples. Actually, these disciples have all either run away or denied him. Instead, the only man, the only man clinging to Jesus is a criminal dying for his crimes. But I think the humble criminal recognizes something more, which comes through in the rebuke of the arrogant criminal. He says in verse, in verse 40, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward 
of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. This criminal recognises that he deserves to die and Jesus doesn't. And biblically speaking, we need to ask that same question. What is the due reward of our deeds? What do we deserve? We find out in the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul writes as to the standing of all people before God. He says in chapter 3 from verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, everyone in this room, everyone in this room has rebelled against God. In fact, on our own, we are like the arrogant criminal who does not fear God. And what does this rebellion deserve? We see in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it starts off, for the wages of sin is death. Just like that criminal, we must look around to one another and cry, we deserve to die. Not riches, not life, not positions of authority, not glory and honour. We deserve to die. And not just physical death, but eternal death under God's wrath. And unless you understand that you deserve to die, then you will never understand God's love. Because it's only when we realise this fact, that we deserve to die, that we can see why the sinless, innocent king of the Jews hung upon that cross as a criminal. And why was Jesus upon that cross? It was because in his great love, he came to die in the place of those that deserved death. This is the great reality of Christ, promised in the Old Testament, which we see in Isaiah chapter 53, which we read earlier. A prophecy from 700 years before Christ came to earth. We heard the whole thing, but I'll read verse 5 to 6 again. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus wasn't just physically suffering upon that cross. He was suffering physically and spiritually under the full wrath of God, being treated as accursed, as the worst of sinners, to bear the sin of many so that they could be set free. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds, we are healed. 
He died to bring sinners life. Believer, this is the cost of God's sacrificial love. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. You stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Or in the words of the song, how deep the Father's love, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. What a wonderful God we have. And more than this, Jesus three days later rose from the dead, proving his defeat of death once and for all. And who did Jesus die for? Who did Jesus die for? The humble criminal sets a pattern for us. It is those who trust in Christ alone for salvation. This is what he says in verse 42. The humble criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This was a humble plea for mercy. A note that this criminal, uh, sorry, this criminal uh, shows to us that salvation cannot be by works. Look at the criminal. He was fastened upon the cross and he could not move. He couldn't move. He couldn't go and do good works. He, he didn't get baptized. He didn't serve in the weekly Bible study. And he didn't come to church every Sunday. He couldn't. And indeed, these are good things. But it was clear, Jesus, Jesus saved him this way to make it clear that we are not saved by them. We are not saved by them. The only way he was saved was by realizing that he was a sinner in need of grace and faith alone in Jesus saved him. This thief had nothing to give to Jesus. All he could do was call out to him and rest upon his grace, believing that Jesus was a good and gracious king. And these words of the criminals speak volumes. And I'll quote Charles Spurgeon again. He said, This criminal could have asked for life, could have asked for ease of pain, but he prefers the kingdom, and this is a high mark of grace. He doesn't ask for physical relief. He doesn't ask for earthly blessing. He knows that Jesus' kingdom and the joy that's found in that kingdom is far above all earthly blessing. He knows that this king is not just going to get off that cross, rise up and defeat the Roman Empire. Jesus has an infinitely greater and more joyous end in mind. He knows the king came to die for sinners and bring them into his kingdom to have full and eternal life forever. And we see this in Jesus' response in verse 43. He said, Today you will be with me in paradise. 
Paradise means a garden, which is meant to send our minds back to the Garden of Eden, a place filled with delight and joy and blessing. And Eden is only a picture, only a picture of the paradise to come, which we see the fulfillment in Revelation 21 and 22, where believers will be worshipping God in fullness of delight around His throne. Sin will be no more and believers won't be able to sin, making it better than the first Eden to full and blessed eternity. Our Saviour took this dying thief into infinite delight. And this is where He will take all sinners who believe in Him. If we are trusting in Him, we will ultimately be with Him in paradise. And the key to our joy and delight is not just the paradise itself, but it is paradise because we will be with Him forevermore. We'll be with Him forevermore. This is the mercy of Christ upon the cross, that the promised King, God Himself, took on flesh and died a criminal's death, cursed by God, so that we could be set free. Now, what awaits us is an infinite eternity of joy and blessing as we live in light of His great mercy and grace. As we close, have you truly grasped that you deserve to die? If you have not, you'll never understand the love of God. Trust in the King of glory who died to save sinners and you will likewise be with Him in paradise. You can pray in your heart to Him even now, asking for forgiveness and salvation. Rejoice in His great salvation, looking at what we deserve and looking at what He has given us to be received by faith. And Christian, don't forget, don't forget that you deserve to die. It can become incredibly easy to do so. And this is a dangerous slope. For as we forget this, we fail to rest on the mercy and grace of Christ upon the cross. But don't dwell there. Don't stay fixated on this fact that you deserve to die. Take your eyes from there and fix them on the love and mercy of the risen Jesus as he welcomes you as his son or daughter. Keep your gaze on him. And Jesus set a precedent in that the first man that entered paradise with him after his death was a death-deserving criminal. Not a pious religious leader. They were all mocking him. They were the ones who had him crucified. It wasn't someone of high standing. It wasn't one of his disciples that all abandoned him. It was a criminal who deserved death, who was Jesus first re redeemed to show that he came to save sinners, not those who are righteous. And what a beautiful picture. Imagine the king entering paradise 
and the first to come in after him, a man who was crucified for serious crime. What mercy and grace. And likewise, that grace is available to those of us who have done the worst of sins. Trust in Christ. He will save you. Finally, it needs to be noted that this passage does not mean that you should delay faith and repentance until your deathbed. God can save people on their deathbeds. But if you hear this and think, I'll just put off trusting in Christ until the last minute, just like the thief did right before he died and he was saved. If you're doing this, then you're showing no fear of God, displaying the same arrogance, actually, as those mocking Jesus and having him crucified. It's a fearful thing to delay repentance because it shows where your heart truly is. And eternity is not as far away as you might think. We could die at any moment. Do not delay to trust in Christ. If you aren't a Christian and you'd like to talk more about Jesus, please come find me afterwards or one of the Christians uh, that's, that's here today. And we'll be happy to chat with you. Let us rejoice in our Saviour's love upon the cross. Let's pray. O oh Lord God, how great are you that you came to save us. Death-deserving sinners in whom there is nothing for which the King of glory should die except that you, by your infinite mercy and grace, by your gracious will, you came and died for sinners. We praise you that you have promised to take us into eternity with you, a full and blessed eternity where there will be no more sin and we can worship you perfectly forevermore. We pray, Lord, that we would look to that day and, Lord, that we would look to Christ as we look at ourselves and see that we deserve to die, that we would turn our hearts to Christ and that we would trust in him and rest upon his mercy and grace and walk as Christians rejoicing in your great love. And we pray that you would help us in everything to rejoice in this great love, that our lives would be filled with that rejoicing and be lived to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.